I couldn't get out of my head the power of introductions, of not being alone, and of information flowing from those who had it to the entrepreneurs who needed it. And we, we called this internally, we called it know-how via know-who. And in my mind, it was the secret sauce. Welcome to Ecosystems for Change, where we co-author the playbook on transforming communities by amplifying the impact of changemakers around us. Whether you are an entrepreneur or otherwise changemaker yourself, a citizen who loves their community with a passion and wants to see it thrive, whether you are a mentor, investor, support organization, advisor, philanthropic funder, economic developer, or policymaker, Learn the practical tools and proven tactics of ecosystem builders from all around the world to better support the dreamers, doers, tinkerers, and makers in your community by taking a systems approach to social change. I'm your host, Annika Horn. For today's episode, we make our way to Indianapolis, Indiana to talk to Julie Heath, Vice President of Entrepreneurial Ecosystems at the Indiana Economic Development Corporation. Julie was the first employee at a startup, then executive director at Indiana's first collaborative workspace, The Speakeasy, and now serves as a statewide ecosystem builder under the Secretary of Commerce of Indiana. Julie shares how she and her team spread the ecosystem gospel among economic developers and gives us a new way to think about social capital that the Indianapolis ecosystem has embraced. Know how via know who. Let's go to Indianapolis. Julie, it took us a long time to get here, but we are here now. Will you tell me if I were coming to your ecosystem for the first time, where would you take us? Uh, first, thank you for having me as a guest on your podcast. I have listened to every episode because I love getting a glimpse of the minds of others who do this work. So thank you. Um, so let's go to the neighborhood of South Broad Ripple in Indianapolis, Indiana, to a large warehouse that is full of garden sheds that are decorated like little houses. Dozens of them. It looks like a miniature town. And each shed is an office for the person who works there. And the reason we're going there is because the founder of this organization, Developer Town, is a serial entrepreneur who pays it forward for the next generation of entrepreneurs. And I, I admire him greatly, and he pays forward his time, talent, treasure uh, to benefit those who come up behind him. And he doesn't just do it on the individual level. He also pays it forward on the community level. We can see one of those pay-it-forward examples. in um, If you go through a nondescript door at this warehouse, into another section of the warehouse, you come to the grassroots, homegrown uh, co-working space called the Speakeasy, which was launched by a group of entrepreneurs in 2011. They called it a moose lodge for startups because the phrase co-working wasn't known yet. And maybe the first thing we see is One Million Cups, which is co-organized by a handful of entrepreneurs and entrepreneur support organizations including someone from the Indie Chamber, from the Ivy Tech Entrepreneurship School, from Elevate Ventures, with so special shout-outs to Drew Kinchis and Dr. Rhonda Taylor and Alicia Astrobook. Maybe we're even lucky enough to catch um, 
it on a day where one of the entrepreneurs is piloting something like Bo Turner and her food trucks, that that would be that'd be even better. Awesome. That sounds amazing. I feel like I tell this every guest, but I really can't wait to come and see your ecosystem in person and go on this tour together and meet those entrepreneurs. I want to cut straight to the chase. I want to talk about conflict. You are a seasoned ecosystem builder, though I'm sure you haven't always called yourself that, but I've seen and heard about the work you're doing. And I know you've been deeply ingrained in your entrepreneurial community for a long time. And I know that a lot of conflict arises. Something I've learned throughout the season is you can't have ecosystem building without also having conflict. Can you take us back to a situation or two or three, however many you want, and talk to us about a conflict that has arisen in the past and what the stakes were, who was involved, and what happened? Well, I just listened to the episodes with Faye and Jess and Cecilia they do a brilliant job with this question. So I found myself nodding along to their examples and I will encourage others to listen to their answers. Um, there's conflict and then there's disagreement. And Julia Minson brilliantly digs into the nuance in a Hidden Brain podcast episode called Relationships 2.0, How to Keep Conflict from Spiraling. Ooh. And... I am so I'm trying to decide between two examples. One is related to issues of scale with resources. Mm -hmm. And then and then one's personal. And I think I'll start with a personal. So it's fall of 2019. And the conflict is one between me and my husband. So I, I hope this story is useful, one for other ecosystem builders in case they are experiencing something similar in their partner relationships. Two, because I believe the smallest unit of change is a conversation. And three, for its relevance to our ecosystem in Indiana because of where the two of us are professionally now in 2022. He is working with the molecules of life science startups in an innovation department at a big pharmaceutical company. And I am spearheading the state's, uh, the state of Indiana's entrepreneurship priority that our Secretary of Commerce put forward. So in 2019, neither of us were in these roles. And the conflict came about because he was considering a job opportunity in Southern California. Um, I, I actually grew up in Northern California. My brother lives in Southern California. That wasn't the problem. But the problem is relative to the context. So I, I hope you'll bear with me down a rabbit hole. I had just come back from the Kauffman Foundation eShip Summit in 2019. I was energized. I was on fire, completely in love with my job leading that very small homegrown nonprofit that I mentioned a few minutes ago called The Speakeasy. And um, the conflict between my husband and I arose over my very low pay and lack of benefits, as is common with tiny nonprofit organizations. So our, our family had medical and retirement benefits through his job and he earned more. And so as a shorthand, I'll call his job the anchor job because it is what anchored us to this city and supported us. I didn't want to move because I was in love with my work and I was just getting my head around why it was working. So we were, we were asking, how do we quantify the impact of entrepreneurship and 
and the things we do to support it. And we had figured out that through a sample set of 55 companies out of the 300 or so that had spent time in this co-working space, well, they had created 923 jobs and had an aggregate of over $100 million in revenue by the end of 2018. The city's original investment was 100000 and the organization ran on about 300000 a year as a budget. That's really good ROI. And the clincher is that our little nonprofit didn't invest dollars into companies. Rather, it made connections. And so every day a member uh, could show up and it was a, it was a, it was a model of access, a shared space, an economy of shared space at an accessible price point. Cause it was like a gym membership model. You could join for $75 a month instead of paying $500 a month or a thousand dollars a month for an office office. So you could show up on any given day and get your work done and then be stuck on something and talk to someone and get unstuck. That was enabled by one or two staff members who knew everybody's name and knew what they were working on. And part of it came from the unwritten rules of the culture. Uh, The value came from those conversations and from the just-in-time introductions. Introductions to the SBDC business advisor who was working in the space, to the entrepreneur in residence from Elevate Ventures who had stopped by for one million cups, to the attorney who worked there remotely to the freelance software architect who was hosting the Python programmers meetup. I couldn't get out of my head the power of introductions, of not being alone, and of information flowing from those who had it to the entrepreneurs who needed it. And we, we called this internally, we called it know-how via know-who. And in my mind, it was the secret sauce of that ROI. I had a hunch. I had lots of anecdotes uh, about the power of entrepreneurship for, as a model for economic health and community well-being. But eShip had armed me with the net new job data, with Delgine's four waves of economic development, with the closing of the wealth gap uh, stories and data from Melissa Bradley and Gary Cunningham, and maybe most importantly, with new relationships to 400 professional soulmates <laughs> so, so I could swap ideas with. So one of those e-ship conversations crystallized the insight for me about the power of what we were doing with introductions. Introductions can leapfrog a lack of dollars for founders who don't have friends and family dollars and get them directly to what the dollars would buy. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you're a founder working on, in isolation and you need to hire an attorney uh, because you have a question about incorporation choices, it might cost you $500 an hour. You have to figure out who the attorneys are, uh, figure out which one's trustworthy. You have to, if you do have the money, you're going to have some anxiety or pressure at least because you, you might not know what you don't know. And so um, that's in contrast to a center of community experience where you ask the community manager the same, I don't know what I don't know question. Maybe it's specifically, um, I'm pulling on a specific example. I have an LLC. I've learned that benefit corporations are now illegal incorporation status here, but someone told me that my new business model and the crowdfunding campaign I want to do means I should ask an attorney about rethinking incorporation. And having the community manager walk the founder over to a couple of other founders who had just been there or somewhere similar 
and having a conversation for for clarity purposes. And then maybe walking over to the attorney who helped enable benefit corporations to be recognized in our state and saying to the attorney, do you, when would you have five minutes? And then doing that curated connection where it's not an imposition on the attorney because he's already opted in to be part of the community because he wants to pay it forward. But now that founder walks away from a five or 10 minute conversation unstuck and with progress and momentum and knowing he or she is going the right direction for the next day or week. That is so powerful, right? Now, back to the conflict with my husband. Neither my husband's family nor mine come from means. And so the power of this wasn't lost on him. But he distilled a question um, at the center of our conflict. He said, if this entrepreneurship ecosystem building work is so powerful as a public good, then why aren't there public dollars to pay you a salary with benefits? Boom. That was it. That was the conflict. That was the issue. What was at stake was where we were living. And for me, my immediate sense of purpose in my work. Yeah. And the end of the story is you're still in Indiana. You didn't move to South Carolina. Uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> Southern California. So somehow you landed on, and now we're here. So talk to me what the outcome was. How did you go? By the way, my husband likes to drop these big questions on me, and I'm like, I don't know. Maybe you should call Congress and, and find out what's up. I mean, we are now in a lucky situation where there actually are federal dollars coming down the pipeline for ecosystem builders. Not that they're even remotely called ecosystem builders, but things are percolating. But again, you said this was 2019, 2018? Yeah, 2019. How did you respond and how did you guys dig your way out of that? Uh, this situation and, and that challenge question um, enabled me to pursue the question because it was so distilled. And I wanted to know if this work I was doing existed with a better salary with benefits. Um, so I started looking for it and and asking, where does that, uh, could it be an anchor job that keeps us here that we build our life around? Um, and more so, I wanted to know if the people who had authority over the direction of public dollars knew the power of entrepreneurship and ecosystem building. So since I was in the process of debriefing other uh, ecosystem builders, what I, on what I had learned at the ESHIP Summit, um, I was I was talking to a lot of people. And one guy who worked in economic development attended one of our programs. He told me about a VP of entrepreneurship position at the Indiana Economic Development Corporation. So I applied to that position. Spoiler: I didn't get it. This is where this is, <laughs> this is where the story changes a bit. Three things happened that shifted the unfolding of events between December 2019 and August 2021. The first was that that California job ended up not being a good fit for my husband. The second, the obvious one, is the pandemic. And the third um, is that in the summer of 2021, our governor appointed an entrepreneur, Brad Chambers, to be our Secretary of Commerce. So... I had gone into that interview with all of that 
all of the net new jobs data, the productivity data, the economy of tomorrow data, the wealth gap closing, the local economy flourishing data related to entrepreneurship, along with what we had figured out at the neighborhood level. And I went in with the message, we have all the ingredients to lead the way as a state. So although I didn't get the job at the time, the hiring manager reached out to me once this new Secretary of Commerce was in place and, and said, entrepreneurship is going to be a priority for the state because of this. Um, would you entertain working with us? So, oh, and, and bring your folders because I've got all these folders of data. <laughs> okay. I need to jump in here briefly because I really want, this is one of the things that I really admired when I first met you was you went and got the data to make the case for entrepreneurship in your community and in your state. For ecosystem builders who are listening to this and say, whoa, A, that's amazing and clever. B, how in the world do I get that data? Where do I go? Who do I ask? How do I synthesize? Can you share a little bit about how you went about getting that data and presenting it in a way that made sense to policymakers? Well, I don't think I've been successful yet in presenting it in a way that makes sense to, say, our General Assembly, but we're working on that. We're trying to figure out what does that look like and how can policymakers um, digest what is a whole bunch of new data? Because the data that we had in 2015, 17, 19 has led to a new generation of, of data on the impact of this work for community health and or economic health and community well-being. And it's all coming out now from researchers and universities. And um, I think there's two ways to answer that. One is for other ecosystem builders, Go to SCN, go to um, whoever is convening the other ecosystem builders, because that's where you find out what you need to know. And I'm still doing that. Like, for example, one of the things that I currently am trying and that I'm trying to crack is the secretary has said, oh, we can invest a dollar in recruiting a company or we can invest a dollar in entrepreneurship and the conditions uh, that enable entrepreneurship what's the ROI on each dollar? And give me the timeline. I want that in one slide. And I haven't figured out how to make that one slide yet. But it's this community that, that went to eShip, that goes to SCN, that goes to other convenings that can figure out or has answered or knows who to ask, know how to know who, uh, knows who to ask to, to synthesize it. I think what's next is we are doing some storytelling to anchor in the anecdotes and then sprinkle in the data and the rationale in the form of what we're calling the yearbook. It's at the printer. We're supposed to um, have it in hand for Global Entrepreneurship Week. Uh, it's a, Think of a coffee table book. It's going to be a coffee table magazine. And we hired local creative entrepreneurs, <laughs> a, a small nonprofit of creative entrepreneurs, um, to, to put this together with us. And uh, and we've just synthesized it to the simplest. I had asked Dell, can you share that four waves of economic development slide and he and his dissertation, his book. And, and it's we just use the arrows with the single lines. And then in the storytelling, we say, here's here's a framework to think about it. You can do industrial recruitment. You can do clusters. You can do direct support, but you can also create the conditions. So it's synthesizing it as simply as possible so others can get their heads wrapped around it because that's the hardest part of this is is um, synthesizing it. There is so much I want to follow up on. Number one, 
for everybody who's who's still somewhat new to this, SCN is the Startup Champions Network. They hold two summits a year. We try to be bi-coastal on the U.S. So that is really, I think the analogy you had from the co-working space also fits SCN, where you can spend lots of dollars and lots of time trying to find the answers, or you come to a summit and Julie will walk you over to Tom Chapman and say, hey, Tom, can you quickly explain how this data works? And you will get so much more than what you thought you signed up for. That's right. I may have ambushed Tom at a breakfast. <laughs> Hi, my name is Julie Heath. I have a question for you. And then pull out the folder with all the questions. <laughs> I love it. That's the way to do it. Um, secondly, EBLP is the Ecosystem Building Leadership Project, which um, we talked to Lindsay Shunky a while ago before you guys had the convening. And because Julie would never toot her own horn, I will say that Julie was the host of the first convening of this group in Indianapolis. So you were deeply involved on the field level with the Ecosystem Building Leadership Project as well. I feel like we could have a whole season just talking to Julie Heath and, and pick your brain on all these things. Um, thirdly, I want to mention that the Kaufman Foundation just came out with a new data set in, I think, at the end of October. So I will put that in the show notes for everyone who's listening so they can dig into that data and have have those numbers. Whoever you need to convince that entrepreneurship creates new jobs, it's the data is there. And um, we will try to share that as far and wide as possible. Hey there. While we're chatting about all things ecosystem building, I wanted to invite you over to socialventurers.com where you can find even more content and insights into what we're talking about. And if you want to be the first one to hear about new episodes, get some behind the scenes content, and you could use a heartfelt reminder that what you do matters, sign up for Impact Curator. Impact Curator is my curated love letter to our community that hits your inbox every two weeks. And now back to the show. Julie, you said you had two conflicts to talk about. Is now a good time to jump into the second one or do you want to keep going? Um, well, I'm still thinking on it. It's it's a conflict of scale and and what can be done with resources. And I it, it came up recently when I was listening to an interview that Victor Wong had done and he was talking about his road trip in Baltimore and a group of entrepreneurs who were activating a street and across the street was this uh, big undeveloped area or underdeveloped area or mm -hmm. disinvested area. But there was a landholder who hadn't come to the table yet. And I don't remember the why, but sometimes where I see um, conflict playing out is in the size or the bucket for the of the resource. So having come at this from... I was, I was, before I was at the speakeasy, I was employee number one at a startup. And so I remember how much, uh, you know, a $5,000 check could mean for, you know, that when you're going from customer number two to customer number three, it's, it can be very meaningful and the same for a small neighborhood based entrepreneur support organization. And then when you get to the federal level or the state level, the systems of um, moving money often are only built to move money at the $10 million, $100 million level. And so what I'm finding is that there's 
the chance to figure out, okay, it's not spending $1 on recruiting a company or $1 on creating the conditions to grow your own companies. It's $10 million on recruiting a company or $10 million on creating the conditions to help your region grow its own companies. But when you're creating the conditions, those usually happen in $10,000 checks or $20,000 checks. So you have to have the system of breaking down that $10 million and getting it into the hands of the people who are doing the work. That's, uh, I'm still in the thick of that, of that challenge. Yeah. It sounds straightforward, theoretically, but I know that once you try to work within a bureaucracy, within so many constraints and parameters, actually writing those first 10 checks can be really hard and super befuddling because there's a chance that, that it has never been done that way before. Everyone is nervous about it. Sometimes literally, like I don't have a way, there's no mechanism right now for me to distribute small amount of money. So I have to find a partner who could work with me. And and then that is its own challenge of, of cluster of bureaucratic challenges. And we move pretty quickly here. I want to give credit to the agency where I'm working. It We actually do pretty, we move quickly and, and we've got a bunch of forward thinking people. So it's not the, the people or the culture so much as it's just the systemic build. I want to ask you something else. I, you gave us um, at least one conflict that we dug into a little bit deeper, which I thought was a great example. But I know you've encountered a lot of conflict in your different roles as an ecosystem builder. Looking back, what is something you've learned, Julie, from maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago to the role you hold now, the position you're in as an ecosystem builder? How has your relationship to conflict changed? How, what have you learned over the years? How do you approach conflict differently now? First, I'm going to reiterate and give credit to Faye <laughs> in what she said. Resolution is best done in conversation or even just addressing conflict is, is best done in conversation. And um, I learned that it's best to handle in, often in face-to-face -face conversation or, you know, speaking in, in person. Um, I learned that the stories we tell as ecosystem builders are important and we have to practice the elevator pitch, the why entrepreneurship elevator pitch, because it has to be succinct and um, be clear and concise. I mean, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Have your elevator pitch ready. Be clear and concise about the problem you're solving. Be clear about how you're solving the problem. Sounds familiar. <laughs> Um, and then find your way into a person who cares, who, when you say the elevator pitch, like you, you get the person who's leaning in, tell me more, um, because their curiosity is going to help you to the next step. I learned, especially on the personal front, um, conflicts between two people, uh, I learned to distill problem sets, um, like with the distillation of the, the clarifying question, conflicts seem to spiral when multiple problem sets get conflated and they're much harder to resolve when there's multiple problems that are being lumped in. That's probably my biggest takeaway. I want to change direction a little bit. You have you've worked at a startup as employee number one 
You started a nonprofit co-working space. I inherited it. Started. <laughs> inherited. Okay. Right. So startup, first employee at a startup, um, ran a, it sounds more than just a co-working space. It really sounds like a community space. It's a, ga- it's a gathering space. A gathering space, but nonprofit with very little pay. Now you work for the government. I feel like you've been in so many sectors and it seems that wherever you go, you're able to find your people, hire excellent people, and build so much social capital, at the root of which I think is trust. How do you go about building trust with the people you want to work with, the people who may not want to work with you at first? How do you go about building relationships where people truly feel comfortable enough to open up, to start talking about collaboration and moving forward alongside you? I'm giggling because I've I've been in a few organizations where people haven't wanted to work with me. Um, (laughs) uh, Old memories there. Um, Let's see. I think about this section of the Rainforest Blueprint, which is a bite-sized version of Victor Wong's and Greg Horwitz's Rainforest book. The section is called Build new trust networks by leveraging old trust networks. Oh. Yeah. And it says that Edward Bernays figured out that people don't generally accept new ideas or new behaviors by by sheer logic or persistence. They do so when people who they already trust suggest new ideas or behaviors, uh, either implicitly or explicitly. I I also think back to the beginning of my career. It was around 2004 when the chairman of the board of uh, the board of directors of a big museum that I worked for shared some tips with staff about fundraising. And he said, "When you make your ask, I, I promise this will this will tie back in here. When you make like a fundraising ask, mm-hmm. make it and then." And then close your mouth and listen closely to the response because what is said next is gold. Whether it's a yes, a no, a not yet, what they say is gold. And one of the, if it's a no, one of the no's can be a version of no that it's the wrong messenger. It's it's not an old trust network. It's not, and that's what it made me think of is sometimes you, when you're asking someone for something, whether it's to believe you or consider an idea or for money, if it's not, if that ask doesn't follow a path of old trust, it might not work. So I, to answer your question, I look for old trust networks and then I work hard to bridge them uh, with frequent interactions between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, I also do what Cecilia mentioned, uh, I assume best intent. Uh, I, I wonder if I learned that from her. I find that trust breaks down, um, even in my own mind, when I am working from a narrative of um, intent that is uh, malicious or n- not good intent. So I try to assume that others have good intentions. That has helped a lot. And then the final point is that people really want to be appreciated. (laughs) It could be full stop, but 
I try to look for the intersection of where someone's interests, uh, intersection of the interests and the and the, their strengths. I I highlight it. I compliment them on it. Or if I am in the position to do so, I help them job craft their work around it. And I find that a byproduct of that is trust. And so one of my favorite things on the planet on a, in a growing startup or in a growing program or a growing initiative is to say to the person um, who I'm working with, we get to hire someone. So since this new thing that needs to be done is probably an extension of what we're already doing, take your job. We audit the, the work we're doing. Like take your job and we're going to, you know, audit, do an audit, list all the things that we spend our time doing. And then we're going to sort the things into what you love, what gives you energy, and the stuff that you don't love that takes away energy. So you're going to keep the half that you love, and then we're going to build a job description around the half that you don't like. <laughs> because that's probably someone else's strength. And we can then hire based on that person's strength and interests. You sound like a really good boss. I like the way you think about putting people in positions to succeed. Julie, I got to ask you this because you're one of the few people who work in government and ecosystem milling who I've had the pleasure to have on the show. How do you make sure you still stay connected to your ecosystem, assuming you work in some fancy government building somewhere on probably the 15th floor? How do you make sure you stay connected to the entrepreneurs, to the entrepreneurial supporters? You keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening in your community. So I give credit to our chief innovation officer. He actually had the entrepreneurship and innovation departments at the Economic Development Corp locate at a, at a building that I'm in now called the Emerging Manufacturing Collaboration Center. So we are physically working in a, a co-working type of space, but with a whole bunch of uh, future manufacturing entrepreneurs and innovators. So that's That's one way. And it happens to be on um, a, a campus called the 16 Tech Campus where there's a whole bunch of other organizations that are really anchored in innovation. I think co-locating with the people who you want to work with and, and drive change for is really, really smart. Wonderful. Um, I have so many questions that I want to follow up with, but I am going to stay on the straight and narrow and ask you, You seem to be managing conflict really well. You seem to have a good knack for building trust. But I am sure there are days when it's too much. When something goes sideways, something blows up. You're like, that's it. I'm going to take a week off and just step away from this mess. Tell us a little bit more about how do you take care of yourself when it gets too much and it all comes crushing down? You, uh, you get credit for... Uh, a piece of this, I will sometimes oh. ask, <laughs> I will ask to postpone something. <laughs> <laughs> If I feel like Fair I enough. can't bring my highest and best self to the table. Um, and then I take a walk with a friend. Walking, being outside, talking with a friend for me is the best medicine. And uh, we live along a paved railroad track called the Monon Trail. So I often take walks along it with my neighbors. The only thing that's harder than going through hard things is doing it alone. So I choose to not be alone in the hard things. 
I got to ask this friend, is that the same friend every time? Or is that a specific friend who also understands the work or likes the magic within having a friend who has nothing to do with your work, who can just look at it really from a high level and not be involved? Both. There's, there's the mom friend who is my neighbor, who I will often take walks on the moan on with. And it's having the friend who, who knows all the actors, <laughs> all the actors and factors and their connections between them, the connections between them, who can, who I don't have to read in. And I can just word vomit and say, oh, I have to get this out of my head. Um, so it's, it's having, it's having several friends to call on. All right. Perfect. Julie, before we move on to the rapid fire round, I wanted to let all of our listeners know that they can connect with you on LinkedIn and they can very soon find out more about your work on a website that will be published before the end of the year. And I know that there's a lot of other really cool stuff coming down the pipeline during Global Entrepreneurship Week. So when you have the storytelling that you can share and everything else you're working on, share it with me and I will put it out on social media and make sure that people get their hands on a lot of the good stuff you're already doing, even after this interview is aired. I love it. Thank you. And I Perfect. will I will welcome feedback. Okay, rapid fire round. Are you ready? I'm ready. Social capital is? Know-how via know-who that unlocks other types of capital. Wow. One ecosystem builder who's really good at building social capital. In Indiana, Amandala Anderson, a managing director at a CDFI called IFF. And another is Ed Morrison, author of Strategic Doing. Strategic Doing practitioners are both the masons and the architects of trust building. Fantastic. Lastly, what is one resource that has impacted you so much in this work that you would recommend to other people? May I give you two? You can give me five. I'm here for it. <laughs> I love um, this book, The Power of Giving Away Power by Matthew Barzun. Wow. Okay. Especially chapter two. Chapter two called Constellation Makers is phenomenal, as is chapter three about Peter Drucker and his admiration of Mary Parker Follett. So The Power of Giving Away Power chapters two and three especially. For those who can't see Julie right now, which is everyone, uh, everyone but me, she actually has the book in her hands with her little bookmarks in it. So thank you for bringing that to the table. Yeah, and here's the, here's the second one with <laughs> lots, of, lots of notes. Um, you mentioned social chemistry in the introduction to mm -hmm. the season. It's a fascinating book. And, oh, good. Uh, I'm glad you like it. Yeah. yeah love it. Uh, Marissa King, right? At the, mm -hmm. at the very end... Um, might be even on the last page. She is one of my favorite passages. But another book of a similar title is called uh, Social Physics by Alex Pentland. And the city science chapter is my favorite, has my favorite chart. So this chart shows the rate of idea flow and compares it to GDP per square mile. So this, this is my favorite chart on the planet because rate of idea flow, back to what we were saying about information flowing from those who have it to the entrepreneurs who need it, and its relationship to GDP per square mile. My favorite chart 
on the planet right now. And um, as I feel, as I hold up this book, realizing I'm on video with you, I need to apologize to all my prior coworkers in the cultural preservation space, especially book conservators, for my sticky notes. I need an entrepreneur <laughs> to create a sticky note that does not damage books. Noted, I did not use them in the library book. <laughs> you have it too. I have, had, I have social physics with me. I have dived into the first 20 pages and there's more to come. But I remember you, you recommended that book to me, I think over a year ago. And you said not many ecosystem builders read it because it's not specifically about ecosystem building, but it is about the transfer of ideas and how does information flow. And that is really so integral to what we do as ecosystem builders. So great recommendation. I will put all of those in the show notes. Thank you so much, Julie. Julie, is there anything that we haven't touched on? I feel like with someone who's as knowledgeable and experienced as you, there is so much more we could talk about. Is there anything else we haven't gotten to yet that you would like to share? I want to thank you. I want to thank you for this form of storytelling because uh, you need both stories and data. The data makes the stories believable <laughs> and the data makes... The data makes the stories believable and the stories make the data interesting. <laughs> so we need both. And you've spent a lot of your time enabling storytelling and enabling uh, helpers to help others. There's something about that that is magic. And so I want to thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Julie. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm sure we'll have you back at some point to chat a little bit more about the great work you're doing on the government level for the state of Indiana, but also that you're doing in the field by supporting the Ecosystem Building Leadership Project. And who knows, next time I talk to you, you probably have two more projects going on that I also want to chat about. So thank you for your time. It's been a super hectic morning for both of us. I really appreciate that we were able to make this work. Thank you so much. You're welcome. To learn more about Julie's work, connect with her on LinkedIn. I pay my respect to the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live, the Monacan, Shawanda Setula and Monahawk people. I recognize their continuing connection to land, water and community. I pay respect to Ella's past, present and emerging. This episode was produced by Yellow House Media.